Hello and welcome to Therapist Talk Therapy. I'm your host, Margaret O'Connor, the program leader of the BSc in Counselling Psychotherapy with PCI College. In this episode, I am discussing anxiety and a CBT approach to working with it with my guest, John Wills. We explore both aspects, what anxiety is and how it can present in the therapy room, as well as the purpose and nature of the CBT approach. We discuss the empowering role of psychoeducation and how not to get caught in battles of logic with our clients. We also explore some misconceptions of CBT and how it must be integrated into a therapist's way of working, if they choose to use it, in order to be fully effective. John is a psychologist and CBT practitioner specialising in anxiety disorders. He has a keen interest in the role of personality in clinical presentations and carries out assessments with individuals exiting therapy to identify areas of growth and future direction. John is a faculty lecturer and year one head with PCI College and works with schools nationwide in areas of cyberbullying and well-being. So John, you're really welcome. Thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for the invite, Margaret. It's great to be here. So we are here today to talk about anxiety. Um, and I suppose talk about it maybe from a, a CBT point of view as well. And I suppose I thought it was interesting to have this um, have this conversation because I suppose anxiety feels like it's something that's coming up a lot or it's a word that maybe is certainly used more uh, recently than than maybe before. So just to kind of check in and see what might be useful for, for therapists who are meeting that. Um, yeah, so I suppose maybe should we start with trying to explain what anxiety is or how it might present? Absolutely. So thank you, Margaret, again. So, yes, I suppose working with anxiety is something that many therapists are going to be going to be exposed to. It's mm-hmm. often like 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 depression, anxiety, depression are two very common issues that come into the therapeutic room. And I suppose there's many different definitions uh, of anxiety. And I suppose one that I use with clients as sort of a working base is the is I suppose the idea that it's 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 both a psychological and physiological state of uneasiness mm-hmm. and that is characterized by a sense of really impending danger or threat mm-hmm. and I think a definition like that uh, it's somewhat broad but yet it's it's very much what we are dealing with with anxiety because when we think about it for far too long there's a tendency to see it as a psychological phenomenon but in actual fact um the reality of it is, and therapists will know that this is a very embodied issue. So an appreciation for a, a broad definition, and yet one that captures the essence of what we're actually talking about when we look at anxiety, I think is very, very important and really needs to be a cornerstone in a therapist's mind when they come to work with anxiety, to have an appreciation of its, uh, I suppose, its omnipresence for a client. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a really interesting definition. So you said psychological, physiological. And physiological, indeed. Mm-hmm. And did you say impending danger? Yes, characterized by a real felt sense of impending danger or threat. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. So that's interesting. I suppose anxiety to me feels very free-floating, but that that puts a real form on it, I think, quite quickly. You know, that there's those two aspects. There is, and I, I think yes, it puts a form. It, it, that that lends itself as a definition to, I, I believe, good form, uh, case formulation around anxiety when you're working with a client. You know, it gives you a, it can give you various different touch points that you need to be aware of for the the lived experience of anxiety for a client. Yes, yes, and I'm wondering, does the source of the anxiety? I was going to say, does it matter? And of course, it matters, but like. Um, to the way I suppose addiction even is such a, a broad spectrum now would you kind of regard anxiety as the same like it's those characteristics and it could show up in lots of different ways indeed absolutely and I suppose the ways in which it shows up we have to be very aware of the there's the psychosocial variables in terms of in the environmental cues and then there's very much the internal pieces mm-hmm. the you know that that can become their own sort of triggers to that felt experience um, and again, being able to, I suppose, work with those, understand them and be able to, I suppose, help a client understand them for themselves is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how would you typically do that? So if, if a client comes in and, you know, it's something I notice anyway, you know, clients will often say, I have anxiety or I am anxious. Mm-hmm. Is that something you, you experience? Absolutely. So I suppose when it comes to applying CBT and working in that way with a client, it's very much relies on the client bringing examples into the room. 
Um, and I try as best as I can when a client maybe uses the word, you know, I'm suffering from anxiety or they they come in with a statement. It's about trying to get relatively concrete. Well, what does that mean for them? And what does that mean in three fundamental domains? And those three domains for me, certainly with clients are how is it affecting them individually? How does it play out in their work environments and how does it work play out socially? Because really, to be absolutely clear, I suppose, and a lot of my clients will come with perhaps a diagnostic label of anxiety, when something is at that level, it does affect those three things. So what I'm curious to do very much in the early days, and I think therapists can benefit from this, is to help get to welcome disclosures from your client around how their anxiety plays out in those three domains. It can be a really useful way to begin. Um, useful for many reasons, I suppose, but ultimately, as we'll probably come to later, it helps identify themes that might be a play across all different situations. Mm. That's really interesting. I'm just thinking because sometimes my experience has been that clients with anxiety find it quite hard to give detail. Um, that, you know, again, I'm going back to that sense of it's kind of this free floating, all encompassing thing. So I suppose giving them um areas to focus on, I imagine, would be quite helpful to see how is it actually impacting. Indeed, Margaret, I think for that reason, it is why CBT as a modality fits quite well. So just to give you, I suppose, an, an overview of my own, how I might work with this is that when I would welcome a client to give an example of what happens, um, I use very much that hot cross bun of CBT. So the thoughts, the feelings, the body sensations and the behaviours. And really in order, because as you said, the clients can find it very hard to express that. I start with where the client is most sensitive to in terms of where they're most comfortable talking to. And sometimes, you know, a client will come in and talk about, you know, I've been to the doctor with X amount of symptoms. So they're very in their symptoms, you know, and it's turned out there's nothing wrong. but there does seem to be something that is not maybe in the physical domain, but perhaps more relating to anxiety. So what I often use, and I encourage therapists to be very mindful of this, is to start where your client is most comfortable. So if a client is discussing how this affects them physically, we start with the physical symptoms. And what often can gently evolve from that sitting with the physical symptoms is those physical symptoms start to segue into things like maybe automatic thoughts they have maybe additional feelings that come up. And in actual fact, a bit like, you know, populating a map, one thing can fall into another to the point that at, eventually we have a, a formulation for a client's lived experience in one aspect of their anxiety. I imagine that's very helpful or grounding to a client to be able to land those things somewhere and, and try to make sense of them at least. Absolutely. And I suppose the key is for the therapist to be able to support the organic flow of that. And what that can ultimately give the client when it's done correctly is a sense of, God, this isn't weird in me. This isn't strange. It's very validating. It gives the client a sense of it actually makes sense now. Um, and it, it does a lot to try and deal with a client's internal critic that sometimes can be very strong because they feel there's something wrong with them fundamentally, or that there's something there's something like illogical about this, whereas CBT explains that actually your experience does follow a logic, and here is the logic. Would you, or, or how would you demonstrate that to them? Like, are you drawing that out on something? Or? Absolutely. So when, when a client would be in the room with me, I'm rarely sitting down. <laughs> so I would have my flip chart in my in my clinic, whereby I would ask the client when they're unpacking a story about a certain situation, I would be writing as they're speaking with them. And as they would write things, I would have my four bubbles of thoughts, feelings, behaviors and symptoms. And as they would be speaking, I'd be, you know, filling out the appropriate parts of that formulation as they work. And then perhaps when I got enough data, so to speak, not to be too clinical, but when we've got enough information, I would then ask the client, do they notice anything in that that speaks to them? And of course, in CBT, we, we want the client to try to see, can they make the connections? And of course, depending on their le level of insight, it can be helpful then for us to point out a few things, such as maybe there are certain thematic behaviours, mm -hmm. maybe there are certain thematic thoughts, and how might those be influencing them in certain triggers? 
situations, um, it can be quite helpful. And of course, given that the overall behavioral theme, as those listening to this will know, that in anxiety, the behavioral theme in many different forms of anxiety, be it generalized anxiety, be it panic disorder, whatever type that you might be working with, the behavioral theme is avoidance. Mm. And the and understanding the mechanism for the client to understand the mechanism to why their behavior actually is continuing and how it actually helps them in the short term, but how indeed over long term it creates a suite of behaviors that keep a pattern going and potentially growing for some. I think it really can be helpful for a client. Mm. Okay. So they're quite active and collaborative sessions, or it sounds like that. Highly, highly. And I suppose to add to that, Margaret, I'd be aiming to give before I would make any um, conclusions or before I would maybe have a client really sit and look at some definitive points in their anxiety. I do like to get them to give me three examples, three examples of the anxiety and how it plays out. In other words, and I try to link those three examples to both an example from their work environment when the anxiety might come up, maybe their their relationships. And then uh, and then personally, very much in their own, you know, day to day when they're not interfacing with other people, because anxiety is pervasive when it's at, at a certain level. And just having the client understand, OK, here's three three examples that appear very different. But yet, what are the common themes throughout the three examples? It can really help a client maybe identify and get clear on, oh, I hadn't seen that or, oh, that's curious, that's happening. And then get them to speak a little bit more about that. Yeah. And as was, I'm just thinking, so that's, well, okay, I have many questions now. Um, okay. In case you from, Apologies. Um, no, that's not a bad thing mm. at all. I'm thinking, I'm thinking that's a very specific way of working. So it's obviously a very CBT way of working. So I'm thinking of maybe people who aren't that way inclined. It might sound quite different, you know, even the the standing up, the the mapping out, the 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 working towards something quite specific. I, I I guess. So I'm just wondering, you know, is that from session one, or or how do you feel that you're building the therapeutic relationship and doing that at the same time? Sure, absolutely. So again, yeah, what I'm kind of what I'm, I suppose what I've painted there is a kind of a, a very active and engaged look at the anxiety, uh, like kind of working with the anxiety where it's really. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, where we want to try to get a kind of a formulation for a client going on. But yeah, I mean, I would see sessions as in the first stage of therapy, and that could be, you know, four to five, six sessions. It's very much and it's very much focused on the psychoeducational aspect, explaining the model to them and as a parallel process, building the relationship at the same time. Um, and it's it's very much again to speak to your point there. Timing is crucial. So there's going to be this could take a number of sessions to get to you know that sort of capturing. You know, but again, it's what I say to either student therapists or therapists working is the best way to 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 build that is to be guided by where your clients at, and that means staying with where they're comfortable. There can be a misconception that CBT sometimes is about directing them here, there and everywhere. And it's more directional, but directive it's not. It's directional. It's about sitting with where they are, being led by where they are at at the time. But then there's a certain point at which the talk about the feelings will run a certain course. There's talking about the thoughts. Some clients, as we know, are very much in their head. It will run a certain course. And then is perhaps the time to naturally look at the next part of that for a client. So I think that helps regulate them. It helps not be overwhelming. And uh, and uh, and very often clients who come to me, the one thing they're terrified about looking at is feelings. Mm. It's just something they're not going to go at. The beauty of the CBT model is it, it can address that very supportively. Mm. Uh, and I will say to clients, okay, if that's something that's, difficult for now, we're going to hold that mm. and we're going to start looking at, you know, the the, the tendency to, uh, you know, uh, when when something when you feel uncomfortable to reach for a value, you know, or the tendency to we might look at behavior because that might be where they're more comfortable with. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Maybe one I'd forgotten that, you know, you might ask 
what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What were you doing? But that mm. feeling question tends to be the one that people skip. Mm. They, they skip, in my experience, they'll skip into, well, this is what I did. And I'm like, yes. mm, but, but what were you feeling? <laughs> so it's a really good point. Yeah, that, that one can be harder. And I suppose I was interested when you said it's such an embodied yes. um, condition. Yes. Uh, you're, you're not skipping the physical aspect that's really important I suppose I don't know if people always associate that with CBT that you're you're paying attention to the physical symptoms and, and I suppose feelings yes and I mean the data we have now and I mean as third wave CBT modalities have begun to grow we're very much have to acknowledge that there is an embodied piece there is there's the physical body involved and a lot of people and number of my clients are are and how do I say this in a I suppose in a in 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 a way that's I suppose supportive, but just that they can be turned off from their body, you know. And getting in touch with the with your physiology can be an excellent key, and um, even though it can also be equally terrifying, but it can be a, a good key to try to understand how the anxiety um might be like what some people are kind of you know just just short of being triggered, but there's a lot of physiological cortisol energy there that's just about to fire and. A lot of the techniques in CBT could be looking at, you know, managing that level of, of, of physiological arousal, bringing it down to the point that actually you're you're less likely to be as overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. It's really important. And, you know, and just to add to that, like, you know, you mentioned feelings, Margaret, the tendency that you've observed in your practice to notice that that can be a thing that's that's left to the, you know, and maybe skirted over or, or not touched on. And I suppose we have to appreciate that is a way of coping. Mm. CBT explains that all behavior fundamentally is a way of coping. So if a client is in the room and they are maybe circumnavigating a thing, um, I like to see it as something that we can we, we, we can get to, but we can but it's an indication that I might have to slow it down a bit. Yeah. I might have to take more time with this. And uh, and again, this is going to be part of a of a richer formulation if I sit with it for long enough. But this was automatically brings in your core conditions of of being, you know, non-judgmental of that and, and being so clued in to your, your client that you see that because that could be quite subtle. Yeah. Sometimes. But so, yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes maybe people think, oh, all the focus is on the piece of paper or the worksheet or the flip chart, but like it has to be on the person to pick that up. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you don't invest that time, you won't get to see that. And mm -hmm. um, so it, it is. Yeah. So I suppose I suppose then uh, and it, we, we will probably speak to the application, the kind of structured application, I suppose, of CBT a little bit to clients. But I'd be very mindful that, yes, the pace at which this can move and the, the need to be aware of those different blocks for people is, is going to be has to be in the mind of the therapist doing the work um and 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 understand that yeah um there is um we, we will have to move at their pace and yet we do we have to balance that with a protocol and the ability to know that there are formulations that we apply to different presentations based upon evidence not based on how we just feel about something that there is a a need to move a client perhaps through, through a process as well yeah and would you be able to kind of talk us through that yeah then? absolutely so i suppose we could in and i suppose what i'm what i it's always important to put a health warning over anything that's that's mentioned here so i always say you know the what i'm about to outline is is not prescriptive but it's a it's a way in which i would would operate in terms of broad stages and i suppose every person doing any intervention and uh, needs to work with their supervisor around you know the appropriateness of when they use it and how they use it but i suppose in terms of anxiety as a broad without getting into specific aspects in terms of specific diagnostic types of anxiety, but anxiety requires a, an overall two-pronged approach from the therapist. And the first aspect, I suppose, in dealing with it in the early stages of therapy, the responsibility of the therapist and the, the, the things they need to be very mindful of is providing the client with the first 50% of the work, which is the tools to cope with the anxiety they've got. Uh, to get to those tools requires you to understand you know, the various different automatic negative thoughts, the various different behaviours, the various different feelings, all of those things. And to identify tools, because you know yourself, Margaret, there's so many tools, there's so many breathe, breath work and journaling. And this is part of CBT, right? But the trouble is there tends to be a, a plethora 
of information out there that clients themselves are confused and even the therapists are confused themselves as to what do I choose? <laughs> and fundamentally, if you look at any of the tools we have, you can break CBT tools down into four categories. Like when you want to look at, well, what do I choose from? Well, there's monitoring tools. That's the first category, you know, where people monitor their thoughts. They keep a journal. They do these sort of things. It's really, really helpful. The second type of tool would be, I suppose, the, the psychoeducational or bibliotherapy tool where you give a client a piece to read upon, you know, read up on something that might explain something. I suppose the third one then can be modeling, where the therapist might model a way of how to, you know, deal with a particular situation a client might be, you know, to model in the room. And the fourth one, I suppose, which is where all CBT tries to bring people to, is the experiment, the actual preparing the client to engage in sort of experiment. Okay, So I suppose to, to go back and to kind of speak about the way I see it being really important is the first piece of work with managing anxiety is to manage the actual initial, what we might say, the symptom aspect, but definitely give clients the tools to, to be able to manage the anxiety they've gotten mm. and identify what tools speak best to them. Yeah, because it's not a one size fits all. There are some people are find journaling very helpful. Some people find journaling not so helpful. And we have to be very, very careful if there's a mixed mood presentation because journaling can actually be counterproductive. So being quite aware of the need to just work out what is working for, you know, what regulates the anxiety is the first piece. The second piece, which the therapy is ultimately aiming the client towards is is what we know to be the ultimate, I suppose, way that clients get through and work with anxiety, which is through exposure, right? The exposure piece. So it's tooling them up with the skills so that the exposure is something they can get to. And I suppose I break that down in my mind into five sections, and I'll just go through briefly what those five sections would be for me. Um, the first thing is we don't move any we don't move anywhere in terms of doing anything until we've really worked on the psychoeducational aspect. So does the client understand the CBT model? Does it sit with their values? You know, that's a such important thing in evidence-based practice. The intervention must be A, evidence-based as we know, but B, sit with a person's values. It really got to sit with the values and then it has to be based on the practitioner's competence to use it. So the psychoeducation piece for the client to fully understand that you know, for informed consent, that this is what the C this is what the CBT approach to your to your experience might look like. How do you feel about that? How would it look like to look at your behaviors? How would it look like to try and challenge a few of them? What would it look like, you know, to to challenge thoughts? So I suppose the first section is very much learning about anxiety through the lens of CBT. The second stage then that is often that I often very much focus on is okay. Let's start now looking at the two things CBT looks to really, I suppose, give clients an amount of empowerment over. And that is, can we start looking at the thoughts in terms of thought challenging? And can we start looking at the behaviours in terms of identifying certain safety behaviours they might be engaging in? And safety behaviours is a concept that even therapists sometimes struggle kind of capturing. I have a my own working definition of what that might look like, which I might share, which is any behaviour a client engages in, believing that by doing it, they they have avoided a disaster. It's kind of my bit clunky, but it's how I conceptualize it, because some things are attributed to be safety behaviors. And in actual fact, when you dig into them, you realize, well, maybe not. You know, a safety behavior has a mechanism that's quite clear. And that is by doing this, I dodged a bullet. Ipso facto, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. And of course, CBT recognizes, well, that could also be the mechanism that's keeping this all alive and well. So I suppose helping the client sit with, okay, all challenging, looking at behaviors, really, really important. And then I suppose building up, and this is this comes from understanding your client, how is the anxiety inhibiting their life? What would they, how would life be different if it wasn't there? And the answer to that gives us a good sense of therapeutic goals that they might like to achieve. You know, in other words, how will we know when we're there? What would be different? And I think that a lot of time needs to be invested. And often goals that are identified in the beginning of therapy can shift as we go through therapy. So understanding what, how would how would yeah how would things be different? And then maybe putting those goals into some sort of hierarchy. So the client gets a sense of what they'd like to aim towards, you know, first, what would be good. Very often that looks to me like clients will say to me, well, John, I'd like to get the panic attacks dealt with first. You're like, OK, we look at that. And then what might be another thing? I'd like to be able to, you know, go out and not feel like I'm always being judged. 
or, you know, where you might have social anxiety, you know. So there, as we know, in anxiety, there's lots of comorbid bits that are in the mix there. But in terms of helping the client prioritise what they'd like to actually get out of CBT, um, that's a really important, I suppose, you might say, stage I spend a bit of time on. Mm-hmm. Um, then I suppose identifying, as I alluded to earlier, the tools that work for that client. And what I say to therapists there is the, the vital nature of checking in on each session, how the work homework from the last session went or the skills practice, because as we know, uh, CBT is based on the foundation that the work done between sessions is as vital as the work done in a session. Yeah. Um, and, and you need, and it, and that must be validated with a check in around how the person got on with the work of. Uh, that they did between you know between sessions and I, this might be what gives cbt sometimes a fairly initial dose effect that's strong in the sense of maybe helping clients initially to to manage situations they had been finding quite overwhelming up to up to when they came to you um so and then i suppose as as therapy works along it, it's about look building resilience in the client identifying what sort of what are the variables that maybe brought them to you in the first place? What are what have they learned from the journey um, uh, with you? And I suppose I what well, I work on a relatively short number of sessions model, so there would be quite a targeted approach. You might argue it's solution focused cognitive therapy in many ways. Um, but I'm very curious and very eager to learn from a client as we come to the end as to what things they'll need to put into that toolbox for resilience. Because um, very, very often, you know, we want to, we're aware of the relapse risks that can be there. We're aware of the need to support the client. And we, CBT is about using tools um, that are, you know, evidence-based to help them with their anxiety. And those tools need to be, I suppose, fostered, identified, and and I suppose made to be workable when they leave therapy. In a kind of an ironic way, we're working to make ourselves redundant in a certain way with CBT. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So yeah. So again, there's a lot going on. But I suppose, do you feel like you're holding that? Like you have those kind of steps as as a check for yourself. Like how aware would the client be of this is what we're doing? Yes. Yeah, yeah. True. I that would be yeah. So the steps I outlined are very much in relation to what the therapist should have in their mind. Yes, that the, the, the client may not be aware of, oh, we were, you know, we're in this phase and we're in that phase. Because remember, it must be a fluid process. Um, having said that, I suppose I would generally spend the first two to three sessions trying to get to the stage one of learning and in, embed embodiment, awareness of the model kind of fitted in. And then after that, the homework would be beginning pretty shortly from when I would work with a client, I suppose. I'd be looking then to to start identifying pieces they can do between the sessions. And so it would move into a more active piece on the behalf of the client doing work as well. Um, but yes, it's very it's more of a kind of, you might say, a kind of, you know, a roadmap for myself. Uh, in the same way as when I'm sitting with a client and the client might be maybe very quiet. Yeah. They're nervous. They're not sure what to say. They, they don't know how to start a conversation. Well, for me, CBT has always given me the tools based upon that client to be able to, gen, you know, to bring the conversation out because someone in the room will, will be either able to discuss a symptom, a feeling, a thought, or, or in fact, why they brought, why they came here, because maybe a certain behavioral pattern, anger outbursts or whatever it was has, has brought the person to you. And they're very, they will be keenly aware of something in those areas. You know, some, often it's symptoms, often it's symptoms. It's easier to discuss the bodily symptoms sometimes than anything other than that. Um, but it, 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 I often find it really intriguing how the model in its fairly, I suppose, in, a, in quite a functional way, can allow you as a therapist to, to segue into things for your client. Uh, and at the same time, to not overwhelm them, because you get a sense then as, OK, I move this far, but I'm not going any further, you know, and this gives great, I suppose, data for your supervision, because mm-hmm. your supervisor can really look at that and identify where you're, where, where you know, how to move from there. Um, and indeed, and indeed, how I suppose um, what might be useful tools that you haven't thought of for that particular client can be really helpful. Mm. So it's quite a, it sounds like there's quite a holding, you know, so this awareness and you kind of are, you know, mapping to a degree where you are and where the client's able to go, but really tuned in to where they're at, what they're responding to, maybe what they're avoiding. Yeah, it's quite, yeah, 
Absolutely. And in fact, it's the little bit that they're avoiding that you can gently then nudge towards to try to find a way into that. Mm. Um, and that can tell you. And, and, and what that can do, and this is a need for where CBT perhaps can come to its own limitation at times, whereby sometimes you do find a situation whereby a particular touch point in therapy is evidence of stuff that very much sits in the past. Yes. The narrative that brought that that ultimately is behind things. And then that can mean, I suppose, a therapist with an integrative head on their shoulders mm-hmm. uh, can be really, really uh, beneficial because it can it, it can require a journey and mm. um, that 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 traditional Becky and CBT would perhaps struggle around. So mm-hmm. it, I think that's very important. And I think there's a I, we're seeing in the development and perhaps this may or may not be something we discuss later. But certainly when you look at the reason we have a third wave in CBT, it's because of the recognition that yeah. cases are complex and some cases are more complex than others. And CBT can be too brief for some. And therefore, there is a need to bring something additional in to really fill the gaps that a purely cognitive approach can lack. Yeah, yeah, you 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 got there ahead of me. I, I want to be uh, objective. We're not, uh, you know, saying CBT is perfect, but it has a very strong model. And as as you've said there, so I suppose uh, is it the most more compassion focused CFT, compassion focused therapies, indeed, and DBT, and 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 I suppose ACT, acceptance commitment. You know, the idea that we can over focus on thoughts too, mm. and when you over focus on thoughts. For some clients, that can get highly distressing. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that CBT in its traditional form was about going towards your thoughts and mm-hmm. challenging them, what's the evidence for, what's the evidence against, that has great efficacy, but not for every situation. Mm-hmm. And in some situations, and you see the third wave now has picked up on this, it's best if we can use techniques that actually see thoughts as kind of a background noise that, you know, sometimes entertaining them isn't always the best idea. And there's another way to work with them. Yeah. that we are now seeing grow and grow in a really helpful way. Mm-hmm. And that segues into lots of different things, such as the application of mindfulness to cognitive therapies. And I mean, what is MBCT? But it's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And again, I know that's more came in due to depressed client presentations because of the relapse rates we were seeing. But again, yeah, there is that supposed to speak to the whole area that, yeah, the cognitive is great, but there, we do need more. And that's why we're seeing such a growth these days in the in the third wave applications. But there's lots of options, isn't there? You know, and again, even as you said, maybe sometimes too many options for even I'm thinking for therapists when a when a client comes into you and you're thinking, okay, there's lots of different directions I could go here. Or even I'm thinking for therapists who might be interested in, oh, you know, would I, you know, train up in, in some of these areas, I suppose. It's probably too hard a question to answer. No. I guess it's being guided by your values and, and your way of working, is it? Or yeah, what? yeah, well, absolutely. And 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 also knowing your limitations and where the limitations are in your modality. Um, I think that's a key thing. Um, I'll give you a working example. I would get some clients because I've I've had some success but with OCD, which is technically OCD sits not with the anxiety disorders per se, but it's the anxiety and the related disorders because there's some key aspects that denote it as a separate category. But one of the difficulties that you will see when you apply a traditional CBT approach to that is that people with OCD make four conclusions from their thoughts, four fundamental conclusions. And the difficulty with this is when you go to challenge the thoughts, it can start to become a little bit more, you know, tricky. And I'll just describe that is the first thing, which is very familiar for people who use CBT with anxiety generally. But when a thought comes into our mind, we take it as true. Okay, that's the, that's the first difficulty in OCD. The thought is true, but the second difficulty with something like OCD, the thought isn't just true. The conclusion is, if the thought is in my mind right now, it must be important. In other words, the thought is important. It's it's it, it's more important than it's just it, it's it's. So, so, so trying to distract and trying to move away can be very, very difficult. The third thing, unfortunately, is there's a conflation with thought and probability. Yes. So the fact that I'm thinking this is correlated to a probability of its occurrence, that can be quite terrifying. And and then the I suppose the fourth thing it can be is a person can believe, particularly in something like pure O, a form of OCD whereby people have very tabooed thoughts, they might conclude that the thoughts define who I am. So I'm a bad person. Trying to work with that, with the traditional CBT model, can pose certain challenges. And um, and I suppose for that reason, then, a certain approach that helps a person 
like some of the a lot of the third wave embraces aspects of mindfulness the idea that we can have a thought but we don't have to hold the thought you know and these are the things these can be very useful approaches so when i would be faced with this sometimes in the room and i'm not sure if this speaks to what you're what you were asking me but i very much recognize that you know i may need this could be a referral situation to some different type of therapy if we, if we if we continue to get stuck I suppose. Uh, and uh, this is where, you know, modalities again, like acceptance, commitment therapy, very structured ones are quite helpful. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And even what you said there just reminded me, I suppose, let's say kind of how little a lot of people understand their thoughts. That's a bad way of phrasing it. But like how how enlightening it can be to have those kinds of conversations with people to realize I know it's, it's almost cliche at this point, but, you know, thoughts aren't facts. You are not your thoughts. Feelings will pass. And, you know, they might be things that we say quite a lot. But, you know, to witness someone hear those for the first time and, and actually think, yes. oh, what if that's true, what does that mean? It's exactly fascinating. We just we don't learn or I'm not aware of places that people learn about these things usually until they come into therapy it's just that's yeah. right it's not until they're in the situation that now they're for they're looking at it yeah. and 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 that you've you've hit on something so important there it's the it's the fact that we do have it becomes nearly a cliche doesn't the thoughts aren't facts and all of this sort of stuff but there is the knowing it and there's the feeling it and cbt has always had that challenge but has been getting better mm -hmm. at trying to connect the lag between how we know we know something might be true but we may not be feeling it to be true yeah. And when we don't feel safe, in fact, compassion focused therapy is all about the concept that nothing changes until you feel safe. Okay. So you can think this all day long, but until you feel held and comfortable, the part of your brain that will be able to critically work on that is not really going to be as accessible. So it's a curious one. It looks at evolutionary perspectives and development, but it's a very interesting one. Um, um, yeah. So much to, to think about. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you think we need to know about, I suppose, the, the CBT project? Yeah, I suppose it's, it's, a, it's a good idea, I suppose, to, to think about, to be aware of both metacognitions and meta-emotions. And these are things that I know we, we tend to are, are perhaps more touched on when students are, you know, working with this. But very, very often, just to be aware that, you know, the meta-emotions are obviously emotions about emotions and cognitions are thoughts about thoughts. But if you take, for example, the fact that there can be a lot of um, clients can struggle around being compassionate towards themselves in something like, let's say, where someone feels, let's say, the core, let's say it's depression and they're very, very, very low, but then they have the feelings of guilt about being low. So, you know, you've got this double effect that's pushing mood down and just being aware of being able to identify those is important. And also the, the thoughts about thoughts, as you said, they're having a conclusion about something. What does that mean if that's true? And these tend to become really trying to unpack them as an important part of a therapist's, I suppose, repertoire and abilities just to and to tease them out because nearly the meta emotions can be harsher than the than the core one that went with the condition. You know? That's a really, really good point. And actually, you just reminded me of something I wanted to ask you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes I worry about, you know, I don't want to get stuck in a battle of logic with a client. Mm -hmm. And it's something I, I probably, not to be going back to it, but I, I found maybe extra difficult during COVID because it's like, well, I, I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not an expert, you know, in terms of risk. So if, if somebody was very anxious about the risk of COVID, I was like, OK, how can I be, you know, obviously respectful and and um, connected to the circumstances we're living in while also supporting the, the client and their anxiety so yeah I, again you may not have an answer to that but it's something I'm very cautious about I don't want to get stuck into an argument about the risk of x y and z yeah absolutely because you don't want that kind of to and fro that the client themselves is mentally challenging and their own mind anyway right yeah. um, I think what you're speaking to there if I if, if I may is the concept of helping the client sit with the 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 sit with their ability to tolerate uncertainty you know, yeah. and obviously intolerance of, of uncertainty is something we see a lot in anxiety, the need to know and the need to have the, the struggle with the unknown piece, 
you know, and and absolutely. And I suppose it's about validating the way I would approach that is validating the place they're coming from with it, because yeah. at some level it, for them, there is this real risk. Yeah. And it's not right to call that distortion. Yeah. Um, and that we have to be very mindful and careful of that. Yeah. Um, a lot of clients I would have would come to me because their anxiety is part of personality variables, which can make them feel very judged by a therapist. So it wouldn't be uncommon that they've been through four or five therapists and now they're sitting with me. And the reality, when you get down to it, is a sense that they felt that they were, they felt the therapy, and they'll often say the therapy, but they felt it was judgmental. Now, of course, then I go, oops, because I'm thinking CBT, if there's if there's a model at all that could potentially be triggering, it's the very one I practice because yeah. it does get at times slightly empathetically confronting, shall we say, um, uh, because it needs to be. Uh, <laughs> however, that will make someone run to the hills. And maybe I need to be grateful and thankful for, because I've had clients who do present with borderline personality at times that will have comorbid anxiety mood, that I've, I've learned rather quickly uh, the, the, the way to which, you know, they can feel gaslit. And I don't like to use that term lightly, but they can, they can feel you, you, they can feel that a certain challenge to thoughts is is yeah. invalidating of their experience. And I can see how that could be the case. And I suppose, as you said, to be the 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 over logic just got to be very mindful of that. Um, because very, very often we have to remember that certain clients, you know, when there's a battle between emotion and logic, you know, emotion wins. Every day ending in why emotion will win. When a client's in a room, they might be in that emotional state. Yeah. And their ability to have the metacognitive and remember, CBT is about growing critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But we have to be mindful that that there's a capacity issue there that we can't assume the client comes in with. And therefore, we need to allow the space for that metacognitive ability to grow. Mm -hmm. So while me or you might be able to think about our thoughts and maybe challenge them. And at times I even fail in that. But, you know, we we all do because we're all caught with our bias and our way of thinking. And it comes from the deeper held core beliefs we all hold about ourselves. Um, but but that idea of, yeah, having that space to allow a client, let's say, as you said, during COVID, when there was a lot of anxiety. And obviously, CBT favours a logical uh, appraisal of risk. But that's not where the client is often at. They're at a very... They're at a conflated risk level, but the conflated risk level is the known is, is the known that they know. So we have to gently come into that frame of reference without having them feel that it's illogical. Yeah. Because in every anxiety, there is an inherent logic. Yes. You know, there's an inherent logic. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and I suppose it's something you should be very aware of yourself then, isn't it? Because there's some... You know, sometimes I might find a client comes in and, and they bring a, a fear or an anxiety that I could certainly relate to. And, or somebody might bring one that's that's, you know, not not known to me. And I suppose, you know, I have to be very careful not to kind of go, oh, yeah, well, I'm, not that I'd say it, but in my head, you no. know, obviously, <laughs> obviously, that's a scary thing <laughs> or obviously it's not. So I suppose to be, yeah, to be just really aware. Oh, yes. And Mar, that does. Yes. And I think and remember, as the cohort of therapists go into therapy, we go in because we've had our own journeys very, very often. And that's to, to think different sometimes is a bit naive. But like, yes, when you mention an issue that comes up, uh, it does trigger mm. if it relates to you. Uh, and I certainly in areas I would work would, would find that at times and therefore there can be a tendency to uh, maybe want to jump in or, you know, as we all can do, but it's about minding the boundary. And I suppose understand that their lived experience might be slightly different to yours. Um, but I suppose having that history yourself, um, for me, it may, it might be around things relating to health. So mm -hmm. if someone worried about health, I can relate to that from a younger me. Then you need to be curious about that mm -hmm. and understand that. And, and it can help you grow a relationship. Mm -hmm. But also a good scuttle one. So it's about understanding what, in what way, um, and this isn't about necessarily a self-disclosure piece, although that would be often, uh, sometimes might be appropriate. It's more about, I suppose, appreciating the maybe that, you know, uh, the, the, the degree to which people overappraise physical symptoms, you know, just having an appreciation for that, the way their, 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 their mindset can't see the wood for the trees. You know, they can't, that, that can be all-encompassing.
Yeah. And I suppose, yeah, so it's 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 that piece to a yeah, to enable a client to then step step through that and maybe um it might help you identify tools that you know might have worked for you that may work for them, you know, that can be helpful. And that might never need to be communicated to them. That might have absolutely empathy for yourself yeah indeed indeed absolutely uh yeah and uh, again with certain things like that because anxiety's end game is exposure i mean that's how we take the gremlin out of the room forgive the expression it's how we ultimately deal with it and yeah. um, but that road can have a, a complicated map as we know and the rate at which that happens for clients can be vastly different and mm-hmm. um, and and just being able to support and everything to be consent based. So obviously all the exposures of the person doing it themselves based on certain guidelines and supporting that process. And um, it's very empowering ultimately. And um, it's great to see a client come through that to the point whereby the anxiety for some clients, it's something that very much goes to their past. For other clients, we have to recognize that CBT is about a model of workability. For yeah. some people, there may always be a diathesis the vulnerability to that anxiety but the fact is they're functioning in a much different way and a much more i suppose that they're living better which is often yeah and i suppose actually that kind of brings me one thing i wanted to ask you about is i suppose people know about cbt you know or, or that's my my yeah. impression is that you know quite often people will come in and they'll ask for it or they've googled it or particularly maybe if, if they've looked up anxiety. So I'm just wondering how you feel about that. You know, the fact that people are more informed and I'm wondering then, does that connect to expectations? Yes. What made think of <laughs> yes, it does. It does. And unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, the data in CBT is both a blessing and a curse, right? Because what's happened is we have these programs, you know, as we know, like EAP programs that, that suggest, you know, that cover a certain amount of sessions, but people, who aren't informed will conclude, oh, does that mean in six sessions we're all tickety-boo? And of course, no, it doesn't. Um, so this isn't helpful. This isn't helpful. There's misinformation uh, that isn't very helpful around the, the and then but there's an expectation, yes. Oh, I've heard CBT is great for, you know. But equally, Margaret, when people come into me and they I ask them, because I often do ask, well, what have you heard about CBT? They will come in with a few misconceptions too. Some will say, oh, it's about your thinking. And you go, well, okay, okay. so it's about your thinking. Okay, <laughs> It's about how you behave. Yeah, it is about how you think and behave. Um, oh, but it's, it's not worried about the past. You say, no, that's not true. But so, you know, you can get those sort of ideas because, or, it, you know, it, 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 it works really quickly. Well, it can have an initial effect rather quickly. That doesn't mean you're through a therapeutic process very quickly, you know. So I suppose, yes, it's more time bound. There are certain facts that CBT is. Yeah. Um, but it does care about your past. And um, it does care about your feelings. A lot of people have this, you know, and maybe it's more of a student therapist thing, a sense of, oh, it's not interested in your feelings. It's fundamentally interested in your feelings. In fact, it believes that the, <laughs> your feelings are what are dictating your behavior. So let's unpack the feelings. But there can be a perception it's, thinking it's thinking yeah. it's thinking it's 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 much more organic than that and um, but yeah so there can be sorry to segue but there can be that perception yes there's a there's an informed public coming yeah. in now and you've yeah. probably seen it as well they are informed they know what they know what to expect the diff the challenge like in everything in life everything's about relationship and everything's about managing the relationship and managing the expectation they have of it um and I think that's really important and, and helping them understand and helping clients understand, yes, that yes, it's a model. Yes, it's effective. But there's also lots of other models that are very effective. And there is a tendency for CBT to be seen as the thing to go to. Yeah, It's a thing to go to. Um, and it's a thing that can be gone to for a certain thing. And for, it works very well with certain formulations. And yeah, it and it lends itself very well to being researched. Mm-hmm. Um where other modalities are simply struggling with that. But it's it's certainly, um, yeah, it's it's certainly just something that people, there's a more informed public, isn't there, coming through? And they know what, they have a few ideas, you know? And and, uh, and it's, 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 look, it's, there's financial reasons as well, I suppose, whereby it becomes popular because it's paid for sometimes. And that is both a good thing and yet can just, you know, go, can be ethically also challenged because, it's not true to say someone is going to be six sessions and better, you know, necessarily. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, that is true. That is true. Unfortunately, it'd be great if it could, you know. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think it's been a really fascinating um, discussion as was getting that oversight of, yeah, what anxiety is, how it might present and and 
you know, the, the CBT approach or, or how you approach it with CBT in particular um, and acknowledging, yeah, you know, there's pros and cons to everything as as we're aware. Is there anything you think we, we haven't gotten to or anything you want to add just before we finish up? Um, no, I just, I just, just, I suppose what I'd say, to, what I would add, yes, there is a thing I'd add. And I suppose on reflection, I get this from both my teaching experience and from delivering different types of trainings is that sometimes students get our sort of therapists themselves are a little bit reluctant to use it mm. it's as if it's a bit yeah because they have the person centered entrenched which is great and it's their foundation they see this as something a little bit little different and somehow nearly qualitatively a different thing and in actual fact a lot of what students are doing and a lot of what therapists who start out their work are doing is they're they're doing aspects of this without even thinking you know there's you know and so cbt can there can be sometimes a danger people see, oh, this this wouldn't be suitable or when in actual fact, you know, you can implement parts of it relatively organically. I suppose it just takes experience and practice of using it. Yes. Um, and I think not to make light of this in person centered therapy, the tool in the room is you okay, as the therapist. You are the tool because you're holding conditions. Yes. In CBT, there's tools you use. So you're a conduit yeah. for a number of tools used. And I suppose it's getting that it's getting that balance and getting that level of comfort. So what I would say is for students to be paid, for people who start to use CBT, to be patient with yourselves, to yeah. obviously bring it to supervision and and, and 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 just be clear when you're using it and why you're using it. Yeah. And I was even going to say, I think for to to your to, you know be clear to yourself but i think sometimes and, and i've gotten this feedback from students they almost feel like they have to announce that like now yeah. i'm moving from yeah. you know i'm stopping doing person-centered and now i'm going to start doing cbt and it's like they have to switch and do this but you know i'm going to take out my clipboard and i'm going to yeah. you know this really significant change which is what we're hoping or trying certainly to to teach them about is how to yeah. integrate it so I suppose exactly being clear in your own mind about how it fits with your values and your way of working but I don't think it has to be this big fanfare of you know now we're going to do CPT exactly like this massive gear change into yeah. something yeah. profoundly different you know yes. absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah yeah Brilliant. sure Really brilliant. Thank you so much. And I, I get the impression you could talk about this much longer. Uh, but <laughs> that is a problem. <laughs> but it's a really good overview. And, and again, you know, uh, an overview, I suppose, for maybe people who aren't familiar or even just a refresh um, for, for existing therapists who might have forgotten about it or, or you know, might just inform something that might um, spark a curiosity. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, Margaret. Therapist Talk Therapy is a podcast by PCI College, Ireland's leading provider of third-level education in counselling and psychotherapy. Please find out more by visiting pcicollege.ie.